Good morning. My name is Jonathan Mitchell. I'm uh, humbled to be here before you th today. I'd like to start the same way I've started in the past, which is this. If any of you are here and feel tired and burdened and weary and troubled, you are welcome here. You're in good company. The elders and the staff here welcome you. They sincerely care for you. And we are not perfect uh, people, but we get to worship a perfect God. We have a great Savior. And uh, it is my privilege to preach from God's Word this morning. It is with that that I'd like to say deoxyribonucleic acid, or as it's more affectionately known as, DNA. Many of you know a thing or two about DNA. It is a vitally important molecule that is very complicated, and it is complicated in its structure. It is complicated in how it functions, but it is the it contains the information that brings, uh, that codes the uh, development, the reproduction, the functioning of all organisms that we know of on this earth, and some viruses as well. DNA perhaps became most famous in my lifetime in the movie Jurassic Park, 1993, whenever they had dino DNA, right? And there was this video montage of how complicated DNA is, where all these bits of information and letters and codes were flying through the screen. I mean, it is breathtaking, actually. DNA can potentially hold up to 450 exabytes of data. And an exabyte of data is a billion gigabytes. As a comparison, it is estimated that five exabytes of data can contain all of the spoken languages in all of the known world. Now, some of you may have just heard a bunch of gobbledygook. Uh, in my house, in fact, I can talk a little bit about math or science at home, and I'm afraid all that my family hears is the voice of the Peanuts cartoon. <laughs> Nevertheless, uh, DNA packs an unfathomable amount of information concisely and elegantly, and perhaps we pause for a moment and consider how amazingly creative our God is. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. Yes and amen. But also, perhaps if the psalmist had lived after some of the discoveries of the DNA, maybe he might say molecular biology declares the glory of the Lord. And it does. This morning, I'm going to use a metaphor. Are you ready? I, you've been warned. So God's story is like a strand of DNA. It can be long and complicated, but it can also be fruitful and give flourishing life. Because it's complicated, it can take great effort to study God's Word, to cross-reference this portion of Scripture with this portion of Scripture, to read supplemental information books written by theologians long before us to ask those tough theological questions. It takes a great bit of effort. But because God's story is fruitful, it brings life and, and joy. It is amazing. It is beautiful. It is worth our time to study and to look into and to proclaim it and to repeat it. So what is God's story? 
This morning, Jerry Baker read the passage from Ephesians 2, which is a beautiful summary of our salvation and our redemption. Is that God's story? Well, God's story is not less than our salvation, but it is more. So here's where we start. Genesis 1.1. God's story begins in a very simple place. It says, in the beginning, God. That's where it starts. This is his story. Sometimes on the first day of class when I'm teaching, I'm always sure to tell my students, I love you enough to tell you that this world does not revolve around you. Because some of them need to hear that. And our story today does not revolve around us necessarily. God is where this story starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's my first point, that God's story is creative. God's story is creative. It is fruitful and life-giving. We can read it in Genesis. He created the world out of nothing. The earth was void and chaotic. It was dark. It was empty. And he filled the void with land and with sea. He turned the chaos into order. Although uh, we can't see all of the amazing creatures that he created originally, we can see all of the genetic diversity nowadays. By, we could look at all the different kinds of animals nowadays by watching a, a BBC nature show, right? Or maybe not the BBC shows. They tend to go with a more naturalistic, evolutionistic worldview. Um, but the genetic diversity that we see nowadays is truly amazing. God is so creative. He designed DNA to encode the information that would generate all of life. We read in Genesis that God looks on days five and six and says, this is good. Yet this was not the pinnacle of his creation. Because on the sixth day, God's word says that he formed Adam from the dust of the ground. He made man and he breathed life into him. And then he laid the man to sleep, took one of his ribs, closed up the place with flesh, and formed a woman from the rib of the man. He made man in his own image. And that makes humans special. The imago dei. We are made in the image of God. Why is it wrong to hurt another person or to murder another person? It's because... That is an affront to an image bearer. God made us in his image. Kids, I love that you're in here, by the way, even with the sound of the snacks and the candy wrappers. Uh, your teachers and your parents have taught you, hopefully, that it is wrong to bully other kids. Yes? Have they taught you that? Why is that wrong to bully other kids? Well, it's because... That kid who you see sitting by himself at the lunch table, that kid who wears funny clothes to school and sometimes people make fun of, the kid who may not be very coordinated at sports and other kids tease, that kid was made in the image of God. And we don't bully image bearers or make fun of them or put them down. So we ought not do that. Teenagers, young people, have struggled with depression and anxiety for, 
especially recently, the past several years, it has been a problem. And I'm compelled to tell you, as some of my students in class, I've told them as well, that your life matters. If, if nobody else is going to tell you that, I'm at least going to tell you, your life matters. And the reason I can say that is because you've been made in God's image. The Imago Dei. God brought light to the darkness. He filled the emptiness with flourishing life, and it was good. Human life was very good. Adam and Eve walked and talked with God in the cool of the morning. They related to God, and they related to each other. They had a perfect relationship with Him. They had the the freedom to eat from any tree they wanted in the garden, except for one. And that's my second point. God's story includes brokenness. God's story includes brokenness. Turn to Genesis 3. It's on page 2 of the Pubeck Bibles in front of you. And as you turn there, I'll try to set this up as best I can. We read that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast. And already you start to see the conflict heating up. The serpent speaks to Eve. He tempts her. And he convinces her that this fruit that is forbidden, this fruit will give her knowledge. You might say it would give her freedom from ignorance. Well, this serpent was crafty indeed because Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They ate the forbidden fruit, and just like that, sin entered the world. God's heart was broken because Adam was disobedient. You see, God had set up a way, a way towards freedom. You can eat from any tree in the garden except for one. And Adam and Eve chose their own way. They said, I'm not listening to you. They thought they would achieve their own freedom, and they found that it was no freedom at all. It brought shame and guilt. Their eyes were opened. They immediately knew that they were naked, and they, had, they tried to cover themselves. How many of us who know the way of freedom that God tells us still choose the way to so-called freedom and discover that it brought shame and guilt? It happens to all of us. Uh, You find Genesis 3? Okay, look at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15. I will put enmity, which means hostility, hatred, animosity. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So right there, there's that phrase, her offspring. Who, the reader asks, will crush the head of the serpent? How interesting is it that the first gospel proclamation is spoken to the serpent, the enemy of God. Don't you think that might incite an angry response from the devil? Certainly for 
millennia, the devil has tried to thwart the ways of Yahweh. His end, however, his demise, his defeat is going to come through Eve's offspring. It's promised right there. And we see that the DNA strand continues. But it is broken because it is no longer good. You're in Genesis 3. Flip a little bit over to Genesis 6. And as you're passing over chapter 5, you might notice that there's a lot of genealogies. The family line continues. You can see there's Adam's descendants, Seth and Enosh and Kenan and so on. Many names that are difficult to pronounce. And then a name that you might recognize, Noah. Genesis 6-5 is where we're going to read. Perhaps this is one of the more darker passages in Scripture. Genesis 6-5 says, The Lord Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. How many superlatives can you fit in one sentence? I mean, did you catch that? Every intention, only evil, continually. Things were not good as they were in the beginning. And in Genesis 6 through 8, we read of the flood account. The judgment of God was coming to the earth, and he showed favor to one man, Noah. Yahweh gave him his favor told him to build an ark, so Noah did exactly what he told him. He built this enormous box to the specifications that were given to him. The animals were gathered, and as we learn in the little kids' ministry, the floods came down, but Noah's ark stayed up. The tower, we're not doing the tower right now, but the flood came, right? The judgment, it says in Genesis 7 that the waters increased, and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals, creeping things, and birds of the heavens. Only Noah was left and those who were with him. You see, Noah and his family were spared from God's judgment by grace. When the waters subsided, he got out of the ark, and he began to build an altar to the Lord. And you begin to wonder, hey, is some hope returning to this? Is, is, he go, is Noah going to be the serpent's head crusher? Is he going to defeat the serpent? God even promises, never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And then Noah tells God, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> to Noah, God says, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly, which is a very clear parallel to what God told Adam and Eve in the beginning, be fruitful and multiply. So Noah began to be a man of the soil. He planted a vineyard. And some of you know this story, but the, Noah chose to have too much of his wine and got drunk and disgraced himself. And in that moment, you realize this is not the snake crusher, for he is a sinner, just like Adam was. Adam was disobedient, but Noah was a drunk. 
We can read on in Genesis 11. There's more genealogies, Peleg and Reu and Serug and so on. And then we get to another name you might recognize, Abraham. In Genesis 12, God appeared to Abraham and said, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, could it be him? Could it be Abraham that is the snake crusher? Unfortunately, we see in the very same chapter that when things get difficult for Abraham, he becomes dishonest. He lies that his wife is really his sister. In order, so it says, in order that it may go well with me and that my life be spared, is what Abraham said. And he sent his wife off to be with the harem of Pharaoh. So he lied. Now, in case you're thinking that lying's not that big of a deal, I'd like to remind you of something Jesus said in John 8 in speaking about the devil. He says that when the devil lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of all lies. That's the playbook of Abraham. Abraham was not the snake crusher because he was a liar the offspring of Eve would be someone else. Well, the DNA strand continues. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Who will be the snake crusher? Well, not Isaac, because Isaac was a liar like his father. And not Jacob. Jacob was a deceiver, a swindler. And not Judah. Judah committed adultery and on and on and on. You see the line of Christ move on, but none of them are fitting the qualifications. You know, one of the more interesting features of DNA is the way that it can pack so much information into a small amount of space. It does so by coiling up and twisting around, and, and there's probably other sciencey words for that. But imagine, if you will, a string pulled taut from end to end. If you keep one end fixed, and you begin to twist the other end of a string, then that tension in the string gets stronger and stronger, and eventually, if you keep twisting it, it begins to coil up on itself. And that's kind of like what a DNA strand is doing. You see all sorts of turns and twists and complicated mess and gets into a very elegant space. So like a DNA strand, we're going to see that God's story has twists and turns, some of them unpredictable, some of them very predictable. It is rich with all the elements that you would see in a good story or in an epic movie. It's got history and drama. God's story has potential and promise. It's got great victories and also sin and shame and defeat. In fact, I think the reason epic movies are epic is because they are whispers of the story, God's story. I mean, he is the author of story, and he continues to weave his story throughout history, and he never gives up on his promise. 
her offspring will crush the head of the serpent. One of the great-great-great-grandsons of Judah is Jesse, whose youngest son is David. And David's probably a name you've heard of. David, okay, this guy, this guy we can get behind, right? He faces a monumental challenge in Goliath, and he does not back down. He's the kind of guy you want to cheer for. Go, David. Beat Goliath. Spoiler alert, he does. He beats Goliath with a stone and a sling, and that's not even his only victory. He has many other victories. He is a man's man, okay, a warrior. People write songs about him. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands, they sang. I mean, he was the guy that you wanted to be like. Even the prophet Nathan prophesied to David, he was speaking from, uh, for the Lord. He said, I will make you a great name. Your throne shall be established forever. I uh, guess that makes sense because David was king. So he had a literal throne at the time. He had a lot of stuff going for him. Maybe he'll be the snake crusher. Sigh. Four chapters later, we read about the account of David and Bathsheba. Some of you may know this story. David commits adultery with Bathsheba, and not only that, she was a married woman, and he had her husband killed. So, adulterer, uh, he hurt an image bearer. He killed an image bearer. That's by definition, that is murder. You know, the New Testament says that the enemy comes to steal and kill and destroy. And we see David playing right in that playbook. He stole a man's wife. He killed the man. And then he destroyed his reputation in going through all of that and his testimony. Now, God would still use David in other ways, but he would not be the snake crusher. Turn with me to Luke chapter 3. It's on page 858 of the Pubeck Bible in front of you. As you turn there, I'd like to read part of the covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel 7. I'm going to read it. This was written a thousand years B.C. God says, I will raise up your offspring. I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is David he's talking to, right? And he's saying, your offspring, David. I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. God promises this for an offspring of David. Now, who does that sound like? Who received stripes when he was whipped? Who was it that received a crown of thorns and a royal robe at his crucifixion? Amen. But I've got two more rhetorical questions to ask. <laughs> Amen, Jer Jerome. Who was it who claimed to be one with the Father, Jesus. It is him who even the blind Bartimaeus begged. He said, son of David, have mercy on me, right? 
And Jesus showed him mercy that day. Jesus is the hero of our story, of God's story. And that's the next point. God's story leads to the hero's victory. God's story leads to the hero's victory. Jesus is the hero, and it's his victory that was inaugurated at the cross and completed at his resurrection. Jesus is the snake crusher. We don't have to wonder any longer because 2,000 years ago, Jesus paid the price for our sin, and he crushed the head of the serpent. We're going to read a little bit about his genealogy. Did you find Luke 3? We're going to look at verse 38 and work our way backwards. And as we go, you might catch a few names that you may or may not recognize. In verse 38, we see Adam in this list. Of course, Adam. Now, that's Adam, the the disobedient You back up a little more, there's verse 36. There's Noah, right? The Noah who consumed too much wine and disgraced himself. Okay, Back up more, and then you have verse 34. Abraham is in there. Do you see Abraham's name? In the line of Christ. He was a liar. Then there's Judah, the adulterer. You keep going back and you get to verse 31, and there's David the murderer, and all the way back to verse 23, and you'll see Jesus, the hero. This is the line of Christ. This is his genealogy. You know, if I were trying to make up some story about somebody that wasn't true, then I wouldn't use these people's names as his ancestors. There would be no intention to make up a story These people were not necessarily great people. There are some real dirty sins in the lives of these people. Maybe I could imagine putting David in the list. David had a pretty good reputation. But I certainly wouldn't put Perez in this list, who was an illegitimate son of Judah's adultery, or Rahab. Rahab is in this list. She was a prostitute. So we see so many people in this list. Why would this include such embarrassing folks? And I can think of two reasons. One is that's the reality. That is the line that led to Jesus. This is not a myth. This is not a legend. This is history. And a second reason is that Jesus' Jesus' genealogy is full of imperfect people because it's exactly imperfect people that he came to save and to forgive. He says it himself that I have come to seek and to save the lost. It is the sick who need a physician, not the healthy, as if any of us were healthy to begin with. Jesus was not just a man. He was not just a good teacher. He was the fulfillment of a promise that was made thousands of years before in Genesis 3. He was the one to crush the head of the serpent. And we see that God's plan of redemption climaxes as he's going to the cross. He pays the price for my sin. Not because he owes us anything, but because he loves us. He demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
But he did not remain dead. The good news is that he resurrected, and he would prove his victory over sin and death by resurrecting. Hundreds of eyewitnesses saw him. Many people spoke to him after he had already died and resurrected. Some people even ate food with him. God's story is a story that we repeat every Sunday. And it starts at the beginning. One, God created. He created man. He holds all things together. He is the rock of ages that we sing about. He's the ancient of days. He's the potter we're the clay. He is the he is Yahweh, a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Yet throughout history, man falls short. We are the ones that stand guilty before a holy God. We are undone when brought into the presence of the Lord. We were dead in our trespasses as we read in Ephesians 2. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, made us alive with Christ. So that's three. Christ, he is the hero of our epic story. He does not fall short, even though we do. He became sin. Second uh, Corinthians says, for our sake that God made him Christ, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus' genealogy was soaked in sin. We just went through some of those characters, there were many more, but we see that he is the second Adam. He's the obedient Adam. Jesus is the sober-minded Noah. Jesus is the honest Abraham. Jesus is the righteous Judah and the faithful, loyal David. Jesus is where God's story leads. And my final point is this, that God's story calls for a response. How am I supposed to respond to this? And this leads us to our next steps. Our next steps are a simple way of how we try to explain how we call you and ourselves to respond to the gospel. Number one is this. It's not unlikely that in a room this size, there are some of you who have not placed your trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and we would invite you to do so. If you have never met Jesus, we would, we would invite you to meet him. We would invite you to believe in him, to place your trust in him. His work on the cross is sufficient. And I love you enough to tell you that your work in this life is not sufficient. My work is not, certainly. I know me, and my work is not sufficient, but the Lord's work. You know, he didn't just die for your sins. He did do that. But he also lived for your life to be, to be righteous. And he created us to be his workmanship, Ephesians 2.10 says, to walk in the ways of Jesus. So I'd urge you to believe in him. If there are going to be pastors after the service hanging out up here, come on up. 
and ask us questions. What do you mean to believe in Jesus? What is that about? How do I do that? We would love to walk you through that. Uh, Second, next step, as a believer already, there are times when I think that I can be the serpent crusher. I have certainly had my battles with sin. I still do. Now, maybe the word crusher sounds a little ambitious. Maybe I want to be more like the serpent tamer, or I want to just be able to have my little part of my life that I can tame or control and keep that removed from. Maybe I want to do that. Well, beware, brother or sister in Christ, beware. A man by his own strength and his own willpower can no more tame sin than a puppy could tame a python. The puppy cannot just yap its way to tame a python. Victory is not attained through that. Victory is in knowing that the python has received his mortal blow. The serpent has been crushed. Now, what happens to a snake when its head is crushed? Yes, but in the process, Jerome, it flails around and destroys things and knocks over chairs and tables and tempts people to be unfaithful to their spouse and tells young people, you're not worth anything. And the snake writhes around in pain and tells you all sorts of lies. That's his native language, is to lie to you. So there is destruction and pain. But remember this, believer, victory in Christ is in knowing that the snake has received his mortal blow. And if you are in Christ, we have nothing to fear. No one can pluck you from the hand of Christ. You are protected. I want to be in the cleft of the rock where God has protected me. And when I'm doing things on my own, then it doesn't go well for me. So confess and repent. Share with a believer that little part of your life that you have separated from others. Share that. Confess it. Uh, Third, where is your place in God's story? Perhaps you, like me, live as though you are in charge sometimes, like you are the center of your story, and it's a little annoying when somebody comes up and disrupts your expectations because I don't really have time for that divine appointment. Keep in mind that God... God's story continues, and He is putting divine appointments in your life that maybe we ought to be open to. Maybe we could have the margin in our life to have a conversation with brother or sister in Christ or to pray with one another, be flexible enough to encourage each other. We're going to take part in God's story right now, actually. Perhaps you noticed that there are communion elements in the back of the room. This is family Sunday, once a month, we get to take the Lord's Supper together. Now, if any of you didn't catch that and you'd like to have one, I bet just raise your hand or, or do as Garrett's doing, deliver it to your friends. Awesome, thank you. Um, for all of you who believed, who have believed in the Lord Jesus, this is for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Uh, For those of you who have not yet placed your trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, this is not for you. This is not a magic formula that um, this is an ordinance. 
that our King Jesus established 2,000 years ago on the night he was betrayed. It was Passover, and Passover is even older than that, right? Passover was a time that the Israelites celebrated for centuries that involved the slaying of a lamb because it was the rescue of God's people because Jesus was the Lamb of God. And we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Paul explains this very well in 1 Corinthians 11. And I'm going to read this as we get our bread ready. We'll do this together in a moment. 1 Corinthians 11.23 says, For I received from the Lord... What I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. You see, Jesus was the Lamb of God. He was to take away the sins of the world. And he says on the night that he was betrayed, uh, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread... And drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Let me pray for us. Father God, you are maker of heaven and earth, creator of all things. You made it good, and sin has made a mess of things. Lord, it seems all we see on some days is brokenness and hurt and pain and struggle. And we are groaning for the day that you will return. Jesus, you commissioned your disciples to proclaim the gospel. And then you sent your Holy Spirit. And it is because of the Holy Spirit that we can walk in your ways. We pray that you would teach us more and more of what it means to walk in the ways of Jesus. Help us to be in community with each other. Help us to love one another well, to show grace to each other, and to show grace to the unbeliever. Uh, Lord, I pray for grace. I pray for truth, and um, that we would be able to walk in the ways of the Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.